Hello! Before we start the show, I have one of those bad news, good news announcements to make. The bad news is, regular contributor Neil has been unwell recently. The good news is, he's on his way back to full health. Unfortunately, as he's recovering, Neil is unable to join us for this show. Although we are expecting him back, raring to go, for the next review show, our final one of the year. Until then, Neil, stay safe and watch plenty of movies. We are all looking forward to your return, even Jeff. And now, over to the show. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our latest review show this month, our reviews include No Time To Die... Halloween Kills and The Green Knight. All quality stuff. Unlike the government, there'll be no releasing of sleaze or sewage here. (laughs) And I hope in Neil's absence, you can stop releasing your terrible jokes. (laughs) Hang on, without the regular release of humour, these will be sad times. Not from where I'm sitting, Jeff. (laughs) You mean we could all be sensible this episode? Not with Jeff here. We are still getting listeners' comments about his malignant rant. I'm not surprised. On that note, my brother even mentioned that to me the other day. <laughs> oh, real feedback. Wow. Hopefully there'll be a bit less of that in the, this in the upcoming Darren's Dash. Greetings and salutations. I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Graham. I'm Phil, and when I'm not on here, um, you can find about my film taste via my blog on Phil the Bear blog at wordpress.com. Hi, I'm Darren, and other than it being on at the flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at Dazza Loves Movie. That's uh, movies without the S. And you can read my blogs at halfguarded.com. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Welcome to the show, Graham. I see listener Frank has his own climate conference. Oh, hell. What do you mean, Jeff? Well, Frank's is less COP26, more COP off. (laughs) Nothing to do with me, Frank. Honestly, I don't write this crap. Moving on. And we have some housekeeping. Our listener of the month slot this month goes to contributor Neil. Looking forward to having you back next month and enjoy the show in the meantime. Don't be too nice to him, Graham. He'll come to expect it. Okay, (laughs) over to the quiz. Before we present this month's quiz, let's have the answers to last month's incredibly complex one as Phil (laughs) tried to outdo Neil. (laughs) Phil, over to you. So the film featuring Shia LaBeouf and Jeff Bridges getting their zen was the animated Penguin film about surfing called Surf's Up. I actually really love this film a lot, and I, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. The Aaron Sorkin movie about sports that doesn't really feature sport was the brilliant Moneyball. Al Pacino, Cameron Diaz and Jamie Foxx choose scenery in Any Given Sunday, which is Oliver Stone at almost his best, I think. And the actor that I was given clues for in between, who has appeared in my count eight sports movies, was Kevin Costner. And I have four of those eight as baseball movies. So there was Chasing Dreams, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, and For Love of the Game. So I think it's clear that Costner loves a sports movie and loves baseball. 
Yeah, he's a bit old for him now, unless they do wheelchair athletics. Oh, um, he speaks highly of you as well, Jeff. Still younger than you, though, Graham. Um, <laughs> right. Most people seven. are. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Phil. Now, over to Darren for this month's quiz, which is Bond-themed. Okay, then. So what I've uh, brought this, uh, this month is a James Bond quotes quiz. So I've got three rounds of three James Bond quotes. And all you guys have got to do is name the film that the quote comes in. Jeff, I'm going to go first with you. So I've got three quotes, A, B or C. Which one do you want? B, please. There's a useful four-letter word and you're full of it. Uh, Roger Moore, Man with the Golden Gun. Correct. Bloody hell. What? (laughs) (laughs) Read it a week, boys. Read it a week. (laughs) Uh, I think I think yeah. Jeff's gonna walk away with this one, but here we go. Okay. So can I abstain? No, you can't. Uh, yes. Graham, A or C? Uh C. Well, one of us smells like a tart's handkerchief. I think it's me. That's again from a Roger Moore one. It was in the desert. It was it had the two gay assassins in it, didn't it? And I can't remember. Was it Moonraker? No. It's Diamond, Diamonds Are Forever, I think. Yes. Okay. You'll get that one then. Yeah. Phil, you're left with A. A. Do I you mind? A anyway. That's, that's good then. Do you mind if my friend sit this one out? She's just dead. Goldfinger. No. I've got it. I got it. Go from, Russia it? With, go from Russia with Love. No, you're wrong as well, but uh, that's fine. Go on, Jeff. It's Thunderball. Correct. Come on. <laughs> 1965, Jeff. It was your era. Okay, so Jeff's on two, Phil's on one, and Graham's on none. Okay, so round two. Phil, A, B, or C? I'll go for A again. That should keep you in curry for a few weeks. Live and let die. Wrong. Anyone want to go? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go for <laughs> octop- Octopussy. Correct. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> Who knew that Jeff knew everything Bond? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Graham, do you want to go B or C? B, please. Ejector seat, you're joking. Oh, well, that has to be Goldfinger. Correct. You got one. Yeah. And, there you go. and the next line is, I never joke about my work, 007. <laughs> Jesus. Jeff, did you have no life growing up? No, none whatsoever. Hey, listen, hey, listen I had annual V's as well. Go right, to me then, Darren. Right. Right, okay, yes, C. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. I know this one. World is not enough. (laughs) Damn it. I should have, what was that C? I should have had C. C C for Christmas. Okay, so at the end of round two, Jeff's on four, Graham's on one, and Phil's on one. This is the final round. This time, these are all quotes by James Bond villains. So you, we're looking for the movie, but if you get the movie, you can get a bonus point by saying who the villain is. But you've uh, got you to get the, the movie. character name or the actor? Or both? <laughs> oh, <laughs> shut up, Grace. <laughs> what? <laughs> Jeff. Just, just the character. Okay. Okay. Okay, so Graham, A, B, or C? A. Look after Mr. Bond, see some harm comes to him. Oh, God, I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Just say a James Bond film. For your eyes only. Wrong. Anybody want to have a go? I'll guess. Just go because, on. why not? On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Wrong. 
Now, I've got to be honest, I am struggling with this one. Um, <laughs> I do think it's it's a Connery. I, I'm tempted Goldfinger. Wrong. It's actually Hugo Drax in Moonraker. Jeff, B or C? Uh, C, please. What a pity. Such nice cheeks too. If only they were brains. Uh, Diamonds are forever. Correct. Do you want to go it's for when whole she the tape down her back? Jill St. John. Yeah. And that's Blofeld, sorry. Yep, correct. Extra point there for Played you. by Charles Gray. No, God. You're all right, you're pissing me off now. <laughs> yeah, he's a little bit. Okay, Jeff, Jeff, the points for. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, Phil, uh, you've got the last one. This is actually my favourite quote. Let's go wins, yeah? Uh, no, 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 not quite. No. Not quite. <laughs> Okay, so this one is Name is for Gravestone's Baby. When you know the film, that will make sense. Tell me which which Bond and I'll guess the film because I haven't got a clue. (laughs) I think it's Roger Moore, isn't it? The one with uh, all the voodoo in it. I'll go Live and Let Die then. That's what I said a a bit bit ago, isn't it? Yeah, it it is Live and Let Die. And do you want to go for who the... Next um, guy wins, Jeff, clearly. Yeah, do, do you want to go for who the villain is? Uh... Literally, the only thing I remember about that is the very final image is that voodoo guy on the train and Guns N' Roses plays over the top, I think it is. Or is it, or is it Wings? It's um, Wings. I, so I haven't a clue. Is, is the short version. Uh, it's yeah. about 15 it's, years uh, ago. Mr. Big Guns played by Yafid Kodo. Yeah. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Okay. Or I would have accepted Dr. Kananga. Kananga. So yeah. at the end of the... Um, of the quiz. Jeff is on six, Phil is on two, and Graham is on one. But we've also got a final oh. bonus question, but what I was going to use as, as a tiebreaker. I'm using this as the golden snitch, so if you get this one, you get ten points. Okay? <laughs> Here we go. In what film did George Lazenby make his second appearance as James Bond? If, on Her Majesty's uh, Secret no. Service. That's no, that's, first, where that's the first one. That's where oh, you reason, oh, uh, license to kill. So you've had no. two goes now, then, and nobody else has had one. <laughs> God Almighty, it's a good job it's not it's Darren and not Paxman. He'd have been ripping you a new one there. <laughs> Thanks very much, Phil. I'll um, give you a go. Do you want to have a guess at it? I thought he'd only done one bonds. Given Jeff's freaking out at Graham's second answer, I'll say license to kill. <laughs> Wrong. Uh, it was the. Mil- Milk tray adverts on TV. No, I said film. Return from the man from Uncle. Correct. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'll take those ten points. <laughs> Eat okay, my dust. Okay, so uh, uh, come on. I gave Jesus yeah. Christ, Graham, Phil. I gave you a chance to win it in the end, but you didn't take it. Okay, yeah, so at the end of that, thanks for the Jeff, thanks for the chance. Can you explain James to me Bumble how Lazenby appeared in that film? He had a, um, a cameo as James Bond in it. He didn't actually, it wasn't referred to as James Bond, but it was where driving Aston Martin and he had the initials JB. So, yeah, it was basically James Bond in it. So, at the end <laughs> of that, Jeff is on 16 points, <laughs> Phil is on two, and Graham is on one. So, oh, the God. winner of the James Bond quotation contest is Jeff. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Darren. And I must say, outside of my quizzes, this is the best quiz we've done. <laughs> oh, God almighty. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. <laughs> As we've only one more review show to come this year, I'd better present it for old time's sake. And I'm going to catch you all out with a new format. It's 
five bloody questions and you just have to answer them. <laughs> um, Where's so, the fun in that? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Darren. Much appreciated. Uh, who won? Oh, yeah, me. Uh, let's start the reviews after that quiz. And we're better to start than with the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die. The past isn't dead. James, fate draws us back together. Now your enemy is my enemy. His name is Seven. And what does he want? Revenge. Me. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. You can imagine why I've come back to play. There's a young lady in Santiago I want you to meet. You're late. I met your new double O. She's a disarming young woman. I get why you shot him. Yeah, well, everyone tries at least once. The latest film in a franchise which is just about 60 years old. Tell me, Graham, what was the premiere of that first film like? (laughs) Now, a warning for our listeners, and this is why we've left this review so late, we will be discussing major spoilers as we go. As for the story, No Time to Die picks up shortly after the events of Spectre. James Bond, played, of course, one last time by Daniel Craig and Madeline Swan. Leosudo are still together until an ambush by Blofeld's men, after which Bond accuses Madeline of betrayal and he leaves her. Cut to an excellent credit sequence, and then five years later, James Bond is now retired and living in Jamaica, which was also Sean Connery's best chat up line. Um, <sighs> CIA friend Felix Leiter visits James and asks for his help with a mission due to go down in Cuba. Bond agrees but the mission goes bad and someone close to the former spy is killed. Seeking revenge, James Bond returns to London and a secret service, which is now indifferent towards him. Teaming up with Moneypenny, Naomi Harris and Q, Ben Whishaw, Bond goes off on his own mission, one in which he has to work with Madeleine Swan to get to the most dangerous terrorist in the world, the mysterious Safin, played by Oscar winner Remy Malek. So, Phil... Did this latest Bond adventure leave you shaken or stirred? Which one of those is the good option? Or is it both? I think that they shook up the Bond franchise by being different within reason. And I was left stirred by the film in general. There you go, Jeff. Oh, very good. Yeah, right. Um, I'd stop now. You've won. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not my strong point, is it? So... I really liked it. Um, I would say it ranks up there with Casino Royale and Skyfall as Daniel Craig's best. And I think the fact that I consider three out of the five Craig films to be, you know, classic Bond entries puts him up there as, you know, one of the best Bonds as well. There's lots of things that I loved about it. I think the Billie Eilish song is fantastic, actually. I know it's been in out and sort of listenable to for you know probably close to a year thanks to the delays. You know, with that credit sequence that Jeff mentioned at, at the top there, I think it's a fantastic song that fits the Bond theme you know really really well. I, I think I, she's great. I, actually, it is a song that every time I listen to it, it just grows on me. Mm. I mean, it's not as good as Radiohead Spectre, which was never picked because they're morons, but um, it's still up there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who were Radiohead? 
Uh, only the greatest band ever in existence so i really liked the continuation of the story i'd be interested to see if they do that sort of thing again i think the daniel craig era has been a lot of fun having that continuation of story i don't think you need to really you know know it too well to enjoy each film individually but i think it adds a bit of something extra and something different for those people who do follow it and and want to watch them in sequence i really like the mix of the the old and the new there's two really capable female agents in here and they're not just eye candy they're integral to the plot and they're really really capable and could easily you know run the, the entire operation themselves and we've got a really traditional villain in Rami Malek. Can't believe he said Oscar winner. I mean, I know he is, but it's a technicality. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 still smarting from that. Yeah, the, he went on stage, they give him a statue. Yeah. See how awards work for But, him. right, I, I mean, I, I do think he's a fine actor. I just don't like that film. <laughs> but... I really liked what he did. You could take Safin, I think his villain is called, you could take him, you could lift him out of No Time to Die and you could put him into a Sean Connery Bond film like Dr. No or, or any of the others because he, he's like a quintessential old-fashioned villain. He talks really cryptically. He's got a slightly not really sensible reason for wanting to destroy the world. And he's quite chilling. And he's got an island with lots of henchmen for some reason. I'm not sure how he affords it, but you don't want to get into those sorts of things with Bond. But don't don't you think his name was stupid? Because he's called Luc- Lucifer Satan. Was what his name was. Didn't you know was that? It? His name is, yeah, Lucifer Safin, Lucifer Satan. I thought, yeah, what? They're making it up. And then at one stage he says, You're very like me, Mr. Bond. And I went, But all villains say that. Yeah, but that, that I think is the point. And, and I, I would say, if you don't like him, I kind of get it as well, because you could easily, as much as I liked it because it's a really old fashioned villain. You could easily dislike that, saying it's just, you know, it's old hat, it's been done before. So No, I did, I did like him, and I thought he was very well set up. I thought his initial entrance as he was walking through the snow, through the forest, was fabulous. That, yeah, just that great, creepy, creeping menace coming towards the house, yeah. It was yeah. straight out of a horror film. I think Daniel Craig does really well here as well. I mean, I think he's been a good Bond. I've enjoyed the two that I mentioned, I think are great. But I think he he does pathos um, really well here. And I know Jeff said we're going to talk about the ending at some point, but I think he really nailed it. It is different and it is you know taking Bond to a slightly different place. And he looks fantastic in a tux, which obviously is, you know, part of the job, right? I thought that the action scenes were clinical and efficient. You, you know, you're on the edge of your seat. They're great to watch. And a lot of people I spoke to, you know, were discomforted from the, I think it's two hours, 37 minutes, two hours, 40, something like that. I didn't notice it at all. It just flew past for me. Um, I felt that the story was propulsive. It kept moving forward. There was always another action scene around the corner, and I, I felt like you couldn't get bored. I really enjoyed the references to the other Bond film, and after that quiz, I feel like I must have missed loads as well. Jeff probably saw loads more than me. Uh, I'll fill you in later, Phil, don't <laughs> But I loved um, the references to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. There's obviously the music cue there as well, which I thought did almost give away the ending. As the film was coming to the end, I was thinking, are they going to have the courage to do that rather than, uh, you know, what's going to happen? And I just thought the absolute standout, I can't 
you know, go past this review without mentioning it was Anna de Armar, whose little cameo as this very fun, very effective agent was a big shot on the arm for the film. I loved the little trade between them about how long have you been training? And she was like, oh, about three weeks before she efficiently dispatched a load of villains. Um, <laughs> I thought she was really, really great. And all in all, I just don't think we could have asked for a better end to the Daniel Craig era. I thought it was top notch. That's a great review. But do you not think that Daniel Craig just cannot do humour? He does like deadpan kind of thing. And I, th- I think it works. I, I don't think that he's the person who's meant to be cracking jokes, right? He's like the straight man who's just like says something deadpan. And it's those people around him that kind of add to it. And that's where I thought that uh, I can't remember the name who plays the other double O agent. Lashana Lynch. Rashana yeah, Lynch. Lynch. So she, yeah, so she was the other agent that I thought was you know, really fantastic fun, and her sort of traded barbs with him, and because that that's what I liked actually. So her role was kind of to be like have a bit of a antagonistic traded barbs kind of thing, whereas Anna de Armar was kind of like the sort of breezy fun kind of thing and you kind of had both of those sense of humors in there slotted in amongst all the you know the clinical action and you know i just i just really enjoyed myself excellent so let's go to our double zero three and a half graham thank you double o two um <clears throat> stop knocking my oq yeah um, <laughs> right i agree with phil i mean bond back was a good story great stunts and a good villain what more could you ask for yes daniel craig's bowing out but i thought the story wrapped everything up really really well i just watched this thing with with a big smile on my face the whole film it was like putting on a comfortable pair of old shoes bonds back he's just been updated for the modern era he's got a lot more soul and depth and compassion but he's still a killer first and foremost it was but, just but less great. gadgets very much less gadgets, yes, I know. Um, and people had a lot of niggles with this uh, film, and I was one of them before it came out. I was so worried after the first trailer that this was going to be a mess. The writers desperately pandering to the extremes of the Me Too and the Woke Brigade. Um, I don't know if this was why Phoebe Wallerbridge was brought in to smooth off the rough, jarring edges of the script but whatever she did the snarky from the trailers was removed and the dialogue just flowed it was really really good and particularly uh, the dialogue between Lynch and uh, Bond I just thought it sizzled when the two of them were together in the end it's a good Bond uh, not Craig's best but a very modern Bond gone is the scram men's talk and in comes a character with some depth and much less one-dimensional outlook of all the Craig films I'd probably put this at number three behind Casino Royale and Skyfall I'm also fascinated as to where they go from this the oh, film, I'll tell you that in a minute with my yeah, the film delivers a complete reset for Fleming's Bond the 50s i'm intrigued for the future darren that's two positive reviews where are you gonna go probably more of the same to be honest i I have to admit when i was in the cinema and and this film started i got slightly emotional because from the little pop culture bubble that i live in and from that perspective no time to die was kind of a real beginning 
of COVID knackering everything up. Because if you remember back, this was the first film to actually get put back at the very last minute as well, because people had actually already started booking seats and everything. That to me was when I sort of started to realise how COVID was going to affect everything in our lives. And getting to see it finally in a cinema when so many people have been predicting that this was going to be the end of cinema and that No Time to Die was going to end up on streaming or on Netflix or something. To to me, getting to sit there and when those titles came up, it just felt symbolic somehow. It just felt like a little victory of, of some sort. But going into this, I was a big fan of the Daniel Craig version of Bond. But even so, I was like two out of four in terms of the films of his that I actually did like. So to me, this was kind of like the decider, the uh, the rubber match, if you will. It did not disappoint because I absolutely loved it. One of the things that I really love about the Daniel Craig films, they actually allowed Bond to be far more vulnerable than I've ever seen in any other Bond. You know, mm. they really, in every single film, they will put him in the ringer. I mean, in Casino Royale, for example, there's a scene where he's, he's actually almost in tears when he's being tortured. Films yeah, so was I, Bob. Darren, watching that scene. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but it, it didn't affect him because he has a kid in this one. <laughs> Good point. I never thought about. You saw him being vulnerable. You saw him get his ass kicked constantly and get bloody and battered. And in this one, they got even more when you got the revelations that you know that first time when he sees the little kid realizes he uh, that he's actually a dad. That that's a real gut punch. That's the sort of thing that you never saw in any of the other Conneries aside from Lazenby. This one was just so apt. And to me, it was apt that this was the first time that we actually see a Bond meeting his own personal sunset. I mean, not even the, the Ian Fleming Bond in the books uh, ever got a chance to do that. And I just thought the film as a whole was just absolutely spectacular and huge. It, it took me back to, back to the days of The Spy Who Loved Me. We've sort of like action scenes on top of action scenes and vast locations all over the world. One of the things that struck me particularly in the, in, in the final moments of the film, is how subtly this, this film has actually turned, not just a Bond movie, but almost an ensemble piece. Because you have sort of, you've slowly had a team that's been introduced throughout these films. I got sad because not only was this the final time we're seeing Craig as Bond, it's also might be the final time that we're seeing these characters. Even without Bond, I wanted to see more of them. I wanted to see Q and Moneypenny and Lashana Lynch as the new 007. You know, I wanted to see those. And of course, Felix sadly didn't make it till the end. But I, I wanted to see more of these characters. And the Anna Del Armas character, who I, I thought she was only been there for a short time, but I thought she was absolutely wonderful. You know, the, the way she sort of turned around her character, you know, the, the bluff of her being like this sort of like little sort of frail nervous character then turned into this complete badass. I thought she was great and I, I would like to see, you know, whatever direction they're going, I would like to see more of, of them in the future. My only issue in this film was actually with the villain, fully enough. And it's not that that Rami Malek wasn't good in the role. I thought he was and I liked the, the character and, and his personality. Unless I missed this, I couldn't figure out why he was doing what he was doing at the end. With the other sort of mega villain bonds who wanted to end the world, they always had a reason of what they wanted to do, whether they wanted to wipe out the earth to make way for a new society or as mad as their ideas were, you, you knew why they were doing it. And in this one, I couldn't figure out 
what his actual aim was to kill that many people, what his actual, sort of, unless he was just sort of a, a, an anarchist, I didn't get that. Like I said, maybe I missed that. Well, I, I think what he was doing is like Samuel L. Jackson's character in the first Kingsman movie. It's, you know, to reduce the population of the earth. And, and, and that's what I saw that he was trying to do, which isn't bad. You know, yeah. I, look, I've no people, I've no problem with people dying as long as the right people die. <laughs> so, so he was basically Thanks, yeah. Jeff for that. All right, Thanos. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. He sounds like Thanos, but like I said, could have done with an explanation of of why that was. I, I've I've got to say this was a fitting send off to to Bond. And while you've all you know mentioned of, of what you think is going to be next for for Bond, and it does say at the end he will return, I wouldn't mind them sort of waiting for ten years and and letting us sort of savor this and then having sort of you know a, a brand new bond when people are really ready for it and ready for something new but that's just me okay well you guys have all been very nice and you've actually skirted around the spoiler and i'm just going to dive straight into it james <laughs> Before bond leave it to you. yeah yeah james bond is not dead now as you know i'm a bond expert you just saw the quiz results and for anybody with a knowledge of the novel you only live twice the clues are there as to what happens in the finale and, more importantly, what happens next. Now, being brutally honest, James Bond, the franchise, was more dead after Die Another Day than this film. Dear old Lord. Well, right. you know, I mean, this is a, you know, let's come back to this. It is a great film. I say that with a problem that Daniel Craig has, that he started off at the best and has gone down since then. Casino Royale was as close to the perfect Bond movie as you can get. It's thrilling with a tough actor in the role and plenty of homage to the source novel and that's a very tough act to follow which again comes back to my theory with regard to the novels that the producers have already mapped out that you only live twice ending very carefully let's jump from that and go back to the film again with american director carrie joji fukunaga who does a great job of building the characters and the pacing of the action scenes. The only criticism I have is he doesn't highlight all of the moments which deserve to be highlighted. For example, the death of Blofeld, which happens off screen. However, his greatest asset, even without humour, is Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig is supremely confident in the role, and alongside him there are wonderful performances that you guys have mentioned, Lashana Lynch and Anada Armes, Malik's okay as a villain, and let's be here, it is Dr. No, however you cut it. It's difficult to look at this film in isolation. Daniel Craig, and again, you've all, you guys have all said it, it's a story thread which has run through his tenure. No wonder, as this finishes that story, this is the longest Bond film yet made. Because if you think about it, it's wrapping up all those elements from those different films. And it's a pretty good send-off. And it leaves the franchise in much better shape than when he found it. And I haven't forgotten all those reporters that sniped at Craig when he got the role. So the bar at the moment remains high. But I'll leave you with this thought. It makes you wonder, when they kill off so much in this movie, what on earth was Danny Boyle planning to do that allegedly pushed it too far? <laughs> That's right. I'd love to know that. Yeah. Makes you reach out. for another martini, eh? Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. So what a way to leave the series. No Time to Die is currently still packing them in at cinemas and expect it on pay-per-view in time for Christmas. So let's go from one veteran to another. No, not Graham. Director Ridley Scott returns with his historical drama, The Last Duel. There is only one question that matters. 
Do you swear on your life that what you say is true? Chocolagree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I am telling the truth. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. This should be settled quietly. I'm innocent! I request a duel to the death. If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. I am risking my life for you. You are risking my life so you can save your pride. The penalty for bearing false witness is that you are to be burned alive. I will not be silent. Ridley Scott returns with another historical epic, this one more Kingdom of Heaven than Gladiator, the true story of the last trial by combat or duel fought in France. The actual events took place in 1386 between knight Jean de Carouge, played by Matt Damon, and former friend Jacques Legree. Yeah, Jacques Legree. Jacques Legree. Jacques Bloody foreign names. Played by Adam Driver. you are with foreign names. names. Hate them. Hate them. The reason given, Legray raped de Carouge's wife, Marguerite, played by Jodie Comer. But did he? Scott's film is presented Rashomon style, split into chapters, as we get to see the events from each of the three protagonists' perspectives. To give an accurate representation of the age and the events, the film is both brutal and disturbing especially when presenting the rape scene. And I can't overstate that enough, how disturbing that sequence is. Oh, God, it's horrible. Graham, how disturbing did you find this movie? Well, I find it disturbing mainly for the rape scene, which was absolutely disgusting. But also, there's lots of things that I found odd about this film. I mean, this is Jason Bourne, Batman and Kylo Ren together in a Ridley Scott movie. Right. And it okay, can I up... just stop you there, please? What? Those are characters from different <laughs> movies. These <laughs> are actors, okay? Carry on. In a Ridley Scott movie, and it flopped at the box office. I have some questions. Why did this film flop at the box office, grossing $23 million worldwide? It's a great movie. It Was it too adult? Are the people who normally watch this type of film not comfortable returning to the cinema? It's a completely new IP based on a book with a very interesting modern look at sexual politics in the 14th century. I found this film fascinating from, as you say, Jeff, the Rashomon style multiple viewpoints to the interplay of all the characters. It was a real adult film with adult themes. And why didn't people go to see it? I mean, the three acts are really cleverly laid out. Jeff, and we, we went to see it together and we had coffee afterwards and we were talking about should the acts be in a different order. But mm. when I thought about it afterwards, I thought they were. I mean, the first act is from Matt Damon's character's perspective. Now he thinks of himself as a hero and someone to be respected. So everything in this act is about people disrespecting him. He sees the rape of his wife as a disrespectful act against to be, him. To be fair... I would see that if if that happened in personal circumstances. Let that sink in for a minute. It's not the horror that his wife has been through, but it's all about him. And the second act from the viewpoint of Adam Driver's character, again, we actually get to see the rape from his viewpoint. 
he embellishes the violent, disgusting rape with lots of clips of what he thinks is Jodie Comer's character flirting with him. Even so, it's a bit of a leap from flirting to full-on horrific sexual assault. And then the third act is when we see it from the perspective of Jodie Comer's character, and it's what really happened, and it's even more horrific than what was shown in, in the second act. This point that you see is the problems that all women had with Harvey Weinstein or people like that. Nobody believes her. Comer's character has been violated and nobody believes her. Even her best friend testifies against her. You know, her mother-in-law tells her to brush it under the carpet and move on with her life. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. And it's so relatable to these times, even though it's set in 13, 1380 or whenever. It's just so relatable. And in the end, when the court throws their hands up, not in horror, but in frustration, as they cannot sort out this mess, they pass it on to a higher court, which in the 1300s was God. So the two men have to battle it out to the death. And whoever wins has God on his side and their side of the argument it will be vindicated. But by this time, by the time the, the actual end bit came around the duel, I was fully invested. I know which one of the men I wanted to win and, and, and or at least beat a confession out of Adam Driver's character. I mean, the final 20 minutes is taken up with the actual duel. And for Ridley Scott fans, this is more like the sword play you saw in Gladiator. And it's not that, all that nonsense in Exodus, God of Kings. I God like Kings. Exodus, God of Kings. Of course you did, Jeff. Yeah, but it's nothing like, it's not, it's not as good as uh, Gladiator. Uh, the, the fighting is brutal. Both men are armoured from head to toe and they are beating the living crap out of one another. Now, the important thing to realise here is that these two men are not fighting over what happened to Cormer's character. They're fighting for their honour. Cormer is just an aside to the battle. Damon's character believes his honour has been insulted and uh, Driver's character thinks that he has done nothing wrong and his name has been besmirched by Damon. I mean, I love this film. Isn't this what we were asking for? You know, an adult movie with adult themes, an epic. It's a $100 million epic film with action and swordplay. This film makes clear statements about the true victim of rape and brings into the light the ridiculous nature of the legal system that in this case was composed only of men. The way women were treated and are still treated by the legal system is horrific. It's a fine piece of work, and I cannot understand why it didn't do any better than it did at the box office. Two final points, just quickly. At the Flicks is a group of film fans, and we only review films that we have watched. This movie got a lot of hate before it even came out from people who hadn't even seen the movie. These people got this movie completely wrong. This is a great movie about women's rights and why those rights are important, why we need a representative legal system and why men are complete arseholes. And the, and the second point is just uh, the fact that this film bombed should be alarming for all film fans. The fact that a, a movie this good with as much star to power and a superstar director, Bond, it's shocking. We interview a lot of new and upcoming directors who must be looking at this movie and thinking, if Ridley Scott can't get people to watch adult movies, what chances has my weird little movie got 
is the future just an endless parade of superhero and franchise movies with God, nothing no. original getting funded? I mean, this God, is the no. problem. Producers are going to look at this and go, well, I'm not going to make anything new and original because look what happened to the last duel. Okay. Um, a grim warning there. Do you um, concur with that, Darren? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm not particularly even wanting to do my review now because Graham pretty much, in his passionate review there, he's pretty much said most of the stuff that I wanted to say. So, um, uh, Oops, the, sorry. The, um, no, no, it's not. I, I, I enjoyed your review. It was uh, everything, I, I, like I said, that I wanted to say. I mean, I, I, I've got to say, I absolutely love this film. I thought it was absolutely mm. gripping. The, uh, the the three different views of the same event structure isn't something that's new. It used to be a popular trope on TV shows at one point because I, I remember an episode of Magnum doing ex- the exact same thing. And I even uh, remember a Spider-Man comic once where you had a, um, a story which was a bank robbery seen through the different eyes of J. Jonah Jameson, Mary Jane and, and Peter Parker. So, so it's, it's, it's not an original way of telling a film. But this worked so well because it allowed you to see how those three characters all saw themselves and the arrogance and the, the chauvinism and the toxicity of the two male leads in this. And you got a real sense of their purpose. And there was just... There was just enough differences in each one for you. To me, it felt like retelling the story those three times, you know, did work really, really well. I think it was quite rare for a film like Last Year that had a very powerful story with themes that were, were very obvious. I mean, the whole thing about the control of women, women being used for property, being used for what they can give to male characters and, and how they were sort of how they made the male characters feel and how they were attacked when they're being assaulted and were and were doubly punished for actually speaking out for them and these were sort of issues that played so well into what we've seen in the last few years especially within the film industry but there wasn't any sort of grandstanding speeches or having mm. it home to you it was there it was easy to see but it was up to you, the viewer, to, to, to take that. He respected your intelligence as a viewer to work that out by yourself. And and I thought that was, you know, great. I mean, there was a, a recurring theme throughout the film. The women, the, like the wives and the mothers of these characters, were just doing these like little side glances as if they knew what were going on and as if they had their own experiences as well. This like little, and you could see that they were like subdued into silence. I mean, for example, the, the scene where the duel's happening and the king's getting really excited and everything, we see this battle. His wife's just sort of look at him with a side eye. And, and earlier on, where there's, where's, in the courtroom scene, you see the women sort of like looking at each other. But they know what's going on. It's just that they're subjugated so much that they, they're not allowed to speak out. But just little things like like that, uh, I I just thought it was an absolutely you know amazing movie. One of the things about it as well is the fight scenes. I I I was as invested in that fight as I have been in any Rocky movie for for the outcome and getting into a fight, but not for the two guys themselves. I I didn't give a shit about them. They could have hacked each other to death for all I cared. What I was desperate for Matt Damon to win was because of the consequences that the Jodie Comer character would have to pay for, the horrible price that she was paid for. 
and and that's why I was so invested in. And I absolutely loved this film. It had real depth. It it had a you know a, a clever storyline, great action, great performances, great characters, and. What angers me is that you see so many people nowadays complaining about that all we see at the cinema is franchise movies and it's all superhero movies, it's all fast and furious. People are constantly complaining about that. And yet here's a film which is intelligent, it's exciting, it's you know a great storyline and it's actually about something, it's an important movie and people people weren't going to see it. Coming on the back of the TV show Game of Thrones, where you would think that people would now have a real appetite for like this medieval type story, it, it just boggles. It's like you know what what you, you can't complain about not having choice of cinema, and then not actually going to see a great film like this because I was. At work, I was telling everybody about this movie to go see it. I, you know, it's not enough just to see a film and enjoy it. If you see a film like this, tell other people, which is what I was doing. We actually got the um, the book that it was based on, you know, and I was sort of telling everybody, well, you know, this film, you really got to go see it. You know, you tell people about it. But the fact that this film bombed is just, it's like Graham says, it's, it's really worrying. It makes you think, you know, What's it going to take to get people to go and see this, to see a great film like this? I thought it was absolutely cracking. I loved it. Well, two very heartfelt uh, views on this film. I'm going to start my take on this film with words that Phil will never, ever utter. Where Ridley Scott got this wrong... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where Ridley Scott got this wrong is the structure. I think by having, and I can understand why he did it, because you want the impact of that really horrible sequence of the rape from Jodie Comer's point of view. You want that front and center before you go into the final act of the film. However, by having the two nights as chapter one and chapter two, you're basically repeating a lot of what had gone on between the two chapters. And ultimately, it just became a little, I don't know, my mind sort of wandered a bit. And the silence is telling me that nobody else is agreeing with me. But can can I just say that that for that story to work, you've got to have the true story told last. That that's how that structure of story works. You have the two sort of the, the two stories which are false and wrong, and then you have the truth at the end that shows it all. That that's how that that structure works. But I wouldn't have put those words on it. This is the true story. To be honest, that's a bit woke, mate, you know? Uh, <laughs> Dear oh Lord. Just let the story set. No, you. No, if you took those words off, would you disbelieve Jodie Comer's version of events any less or any more without those words on screen? I think it was very important to put those words there that because there would always be a doubt in your mind. And this is the problem in real life. There's always a doubt, you know, and, and this is where monsters like Harvey Weinstein can get away with things because there is this element of doubt. But by putting those words on there and saying, this is the truth, this is what actually happened, and it's uh, Judy Comer's story, I think that reinforced it. And also, I think Ridley Scott did it well because he was already confusing me by putting the first two stories. And I was thinking, well, was she teasing him? Was she flirting with him? Yes, the rape was horrible, but was he 
was she bringing it, bringing him on? And Damon's just a, an idiot, and he's suing everybody, and he's a horrible person. So it set up the whole world, and then you see it from her perspective. And then you go, oh, gee, God, no, that's horrible. This woman has been violated. And, and, there's, there's and no here's the consequences. Yeah, and yeah. here's the consequences. There's no argument, but you've gone woke. If you weren't here, let's do this review. <laughs> You'd be tearing a bloody statue down somewhere. No, and God. Yeah, no. Anyway, I don't want to detract because this is a great film. You know, the, the, I think that, as I said, I think he's misplaced the structure around. But as a film, it's adult, it's engrossing, and the performances are excellent. And I, for one, I'll put my hand up. I didn't even know Ben Affleck was in the film until I come home and check the credits. He's that good. I didn't know it was him, honestly. I think Matt Damon deserves praise for taking on such an unsympathetic role. I know Adam Driver does as well, but Damon in particular, I thought, uh, was particularly unpleasant. On the technical front, director Ridley Scott takes great pains to recreate the period. I mean, he used candle lighting. God alone knows how this is going to play on TV. A warning, oh, the, though. The, the sound was also... Did you notice that how everybody who, who starts talking is in front of a fireplace and everything's crackling and the fires are roaring? And I thought, oh, the sound guy's having a field uh, day here. <laughs> just brought me back to my youth, that did, Graham. Um, <laughs> Living in but, castles. Well, you are old. Hey, there are more castles in Wales than anywhere else in the world. I hope you know that. But I would reiterate, all joking aside, that the rape sequence, which is shown from two different perspectives, is disgusting, is upsetting. And I think one of the real tricks of Ridley Scott in this film is he stepped back, if you like, from the stylized violence of Gladiator. A lot of the time throughout the film, he cuts away from the violence and it's centered on two sequences. One is the rape and one is the duel. And I thought that the brutality of both sequences has a real impact. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat come the end of the film and uh, when that duel is being fought out. So I think it is a worthy film. And I didn't know the story beforehand going into it, which I, I always like to learn. And I want to pick up on the points that both you and Darren have made is why is this film flopped? And I think there's two reasons for that. And the main thing is, is shoving this film out in the middle of an October when they're just jettisoned films left, right and centre at the moment. It's an awards movie. It needs to come out at the end of the year. It needs to build that word of mouth through the nominations that would have got people to have seen it. And also TV now does this better. You've said Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones has got this expanse it can tell the story over. But there was a time when a film like this, a very adult thing, you could never have got on TV. But now I think it's fairly commonplace. And that also, I think, has had an impact on the reception of this film. Final point, actually, on, on why this hasn't worked is a lot of older people still aren't going back to the cinema for COVID. And this is an older people's movie. You, know, you, you need that sort of maturity to fully appreciate that film. But that said, this is a worthy addition to the Ridley Scott canon. I believe there's a, a few more coming from Ridley very soon, who will keep, which will keep our next reviewer very happy. You've only put me last because you don't want me talking on forever about Ridley Scott, right? <laughs> there are, I think there's a, there's not much that you haven't already said, but I'm going to talk about it a bit anyway. So, because I mean, I love this film. I thought it was captivating. It's a riveting watch. Ridley Scott's 83 years old and he makes this look absolutely simple. You know, he's got complete master of his 
craft. You know, this is a historical epic. It looks fantastic. There's hundreds of extras, amazing costumes, battle scenes, etc., etc. And it just looks simple for him. If you've listened to previous episodes of this show, you would have heard, heard me talk at length about how much I love Ridley Scott films. I've got a huge article on my blog if you want to read it where I wax lyrical about every one of his films in sort of to, to lesser or greater extents. Uh, didn't um, you name a child after Ridley Scott as well? Yeah, my, my son is called Ridley because I love his films. <laughs> Not to say that I don't have a critical eye. There are some films I don't like of his, but, you know, it, this is up there. This is one of his best ones. I really love the structure. I think it gives the story a great perspective. Um, I know if anyone who listens to this show won't be shocked to hear me disagree with Jeff, <laughs> but I'm going to do it again anyway. I think that, you know, the Rashomon structure works really well. I think it's required, actually, to, you know, I think um, Graham really summed it up with his review that, it, and Darren mentioned the order as well, it's really required to see those perspectives first before you see um, Marguerite's perspective. And I think it gives the film much more power. So what are your thoughts then on about the use of the words, this is the true version? Do you think, because I just don't think it needs it. No, I absolutely think they need to be there because there are some there are some people out there who would rationalise yeah. you know, yeah. the, the other perspectives. And I, and I agree that we should all be grown up and adult and understand what is trying to be said. But in today's day and age, I feel that, you know, you need to underline it because any doubt that somebody could rationalise away and think that, you know, either of the other perspectives is the correct one, you know, it is something that I wouldn't like to leave any any doubt for. But even um, the Adam Driver's perspective is distasteful. Oh, yeah. And the bit that I was about to go on to is that I think that, you know, whilst it seems you know, slightly crude to talk about, you know, which actor may or may not have been better in the film. I think that Adam Driver is the person that actually kind of runs away with the film in terms of, you know, his brilliance of his performance. Because in the first segment, he comes across as this dutiful guy who, you know, is kind of undermining uh, Matt Damon's character. In the second segment... He's this um, womanizing, amazing, great. Look at you know, look at me, I'm brilliant, sort of thing. Yeah, because that's his viewpoint. And in the first segment, you really see what you know what his true self is. And I think that that structure and the performance that he gives really allows you to kind of see how you know these kinds of people see themselves. Um, yeah, in this situation, I, I think it is a really fantastic performance. I think the whole film is a masterclass and uh, and you've all talked about it, the fact that no one went to see it. I was doing the same as Darren. I was telling everyone I could to go and watch this film and not only was I saying go and watch this film, I was saying, but you have to do it this week because it's definitely not lasting. <laughs> um, Shocking. Because this, you know, at my local cinema, this opened the same weekend that Venom and Halloween came out. Bond was still on. It opened on the smallest screen, two shows no. a day. So no one's going to go and watch it because I agree with what you're saying, Jeff. You know, like it's probably for older people and they might not be going back, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, is that when your local multiplex has got nine screens 
and it's showing Bond, Venom and Halloween it like 10 times a day each, if not more. And this film that's on for two and a half hours and is an 18 certificate and features rape um, is on twice a day in the small screen. Even if they've sold out both of those screenings, you're talking 50 people per screening at my local cinema. It's never going to do well. Uh, uh, they just, the studio just dropped it. I, I can't see how it bombed in any other way other than the studio didn't know what to do with it. And they just dropped it and just threw it in amongst everything else, and it got fed to the wolves. And, um, and, and that's why its original release of last year in December would have been it would have fed into awards season. It would have got nominations, and that would have encouraged people in. But the other perspective I'll give, and I do this quite often, I talk about you know with kids' films, what my family, you know, what my young kids thought, and. This one, I'll do a rare thing and talk about my wife's attitude to this film. And I can't really comment on this other than just to feedback what she said. She refused to watch this film. She said that based on the trailer, that she was not going to go and watch a film that glorified a woman getting raped and that that being entertainment. Now, That's an interesting I can't comment on that as as a man because... For me, this was about going to watch a Ridley Scott historical epic. But if the marketing department can't win over a woman who goes and sees her fair share of films, I mean, she married me for heaven's sake, they must have done something wrong there. But if you take another film on the same subject, The Accused starring Jodie Foster, there they did the marketing right. They got Mm. it into awards. They got people talking about it. Obviously, The Accused, like this, is based on a real event, so they got that coverage. And that was a huge box office success. And that rape in that film was more distasteful than in this. Yeah. It's a shame. Like, you know, when this comes out, this, this isn't going to be anywhere near cinemas. It's not anywhere near cinemas now. Um, I guess that it's going to land on Disney Plus somewhere in the star section, you know, around sort of Christmas time. And I yeah. just really, really recommend you give it, you know, the time of day and see it for what it is. Yeah. I think the, the only excuse for not seeing this is Matt Damon's mullet. Which is horrendous. <laughs> well, the other thing we, we haven't mentioned actually is Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote this, and it's the first thing they've written since Goodwill Hunting. Hunting and, yeah, um, yeah can, can, I just want just want to pick up something. I went to see this film on, on a day when I went to see two other films. I went to see three films all together, and this film was in the uh, the, the smallest theatre, and yet it had the most people in. Now, I don't know if that's because it didn't have as many showings per day. I think it only had two showings per day, and it was only there, I think, for one week on my thing. So I don't know if that got people to sort of, you know, to go. But it is it was fairly full. So obviously, you know, at least in Sheffield, people did want to actually go, go see it. That's interesting, actually, because I watched it. I did the same thing. I watched Venom, Halloween, and this all on the same day. Um, I don't have the same story that I think I was one of about four people watching this. I would say just to wrap this up is that, you know, we're urging people to see it. However, if you're listening to this, you have been a victim of domestic violence or God forbid rape. Oh God. I would really think twice about watching this film because it is quite strong. So that's the only sort of uh, proviso I would add to this. Now, I started when I handed over to Phil by saying, there's more Ridley coming. What's coming, Phil? The House of Gucci. Yeah. Which, another thing, actually, on that note is, do you think there's a possibility that they thought 
there's two big prestigious Ridley Scott films coming out Oscar season. We're just going to drop one and not to muddy the water. I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right. If you look at that trailer, that looks the one that's going to connect with an audience more. And Lady yeah, Gaga I've... stayed in character for 18 months, apparently. Yeah, I read that, yeah. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Okay. All right, then. So, in our view, despite being in his 80s, Ridley Scott has created another classic movie. Staying with the age of chivalry, let's talk about the critically acclaimed The Green Knight. Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can regale me and my queen with some myth? Or tale? Oh, greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. I will be deep. Based on the 14th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Gawain, Dev Patel, is the nephew of King Arthur, Sean Harris. However, all family resemblance ends there. Gawain has little time for knightly codes, preferring instead women of loose virtue and drinking. That reminds me, I must speak to listener Frank later. (sighs) I'm going to be killed for that one as well. Then, one Christmas, a mysterious green knight enters Camelot and demands a challenge. Any knight who can land a blow on him must suffer the same blow by the green knight one year hence. Gawain takes the challenge and decapitates the knight, who then picks his head up and says he will see Gawain in a year's time. A year passes and then Gawain must ride out to meet the knight. But will this be a journey which makes or breaks the young man? Phil, did you find this fantasy-based tale honourable? Oh, my Lord, this film was amazing. (laughs) I absolutely loved it. So I promise you there are films I dislike this month, but these first three films that we're talking about are all utterly amazing. That will change in a minute when we get to the next films. But The Green Knight is spectacular. It's all about mood. And if you you don't buy into that, it's going to be dull and weird and peculiar. But for me, absolutely tuned in with what I like about films. And I was just, I just loved it. So Gwen's journey is like an odyssey. It feels like a fever dream. It's full of glorious visuals. And his interactions along the way are peculiar and they're captivating. There's an absolutely fantastic lead performance from Dev Patel. He really should be in more stuff. His character is actually not particularly verbose. A lot of what he does is about his facial expressions and his movement. He is just brilliant in it. The film is about myths and legends, chivalry and honour, promises and bargains and death. But most of all, it's about stories and how they get embellished in the telling. Because when the film ends, what I think is clearly the point is 
there's a question mark about what actually you just saw is true and or is a story and or possibly an embellishment of something that happened that is true. And I really like the perplexity of sort of trying to think about the various possibilities of of those different situations. Um, And I know what I think. I have a very, very clear opinion about actually what this film is about and what happened in it. And I happily share that. I don't want to ruin it for the for the view for the viewers who haven't watched it yet, other than to say you really, really should. The writer director David Lowry, all of his films that in my opinion have been good are about mood. He just makes films that are mood pieces. So if you've seen something like Ain't Them Body Saints or The Old Man and the Gun, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But so far this is his masterpiece. It's a slow and steady exercise in building atmosphere that you just have to luxuriate in and appreciate. But I mentioned my wife earlier, counterpoint, about halfway through this film, my wife pulled her phone out and and, and I quote, why do you like movies about losers who take journeys where nothing happens? So... You can't win them all, right? I mean... <laughs> oh, don't worry, Phil. I'm looking forward to talking about this one. Darren? i got to say, I thought this was one of the most lush-looking movies I have seen in ages. I thought it looked absolutely beautiful. It was vibrant. There were some fabulous views of forests. I was besotted with how wonderful it was shot. And... You know, be, being on this quest with Sagaiwan, it felt like at times I was walking through a uh, an, an inspiring art gallery. It was absolutely beautiful. I, I've, I've got to admit, I did cheat with, with, with this film because about halfway through it, and this is the power of watching a film at home as opposed to the cinema, I did look up the uh, the, the story of Sagaiwan and the Green Knight on, uh, on Wikipedia. And I think that did actually help me actually understanding the film and where it was going because it is a very slow paced movie I, I have I have to say that but when you actually know the story behind it and what what it's going through I, I felt that helped me actually sort of understanding what I was at what the themes were of the story and and I did like I did enjoy all the little stories it was almost poetic at time and surreal over little almost like fairy tale type stories to be honest all of them seem to have a little bit of a, a moral fibre to them. The one that really stuck out for me was when he had the, the little quest where he had to return a, a ghost's head to the, to the body, which I found really, really creepy. But, you know, I, I really did in, in, enjoy the stories. I thought there was a lot of themes going on there. There were themes of honour, of being tested. Of uh, I noticed there was a lot about keeping your word. And there was also, you know, uh, quite a, a narrative of um, of man-made civilization versus nature at times, which I found interesting. And you know, and and the ending itself, you know, how they changed it so you got the sort of a flashback as to as to um, what would happen if he didn't go through with, with his with his promise to the Green Knight if he didn't actually go through with his debt to him. And, and the final line was the fact that it was sort of so left out in the open as as to what what that actually mean did it mean that when he says off with you off with your head does that mean that now he was going to behead him or did it mean go on get away with your head now run 
it, you know, it, the fact that it left that quite open, I, I really liked. So, so yeah, it, it wasn't the most exciting movies because I, th- I think it had a very sort of plodding pace. But if you're patient with it, you know, the, the fact that it, even when it was slow, there were still wonderful things to look at. You know, the, the, uh, the, you know, the talking fox I really liked. So, so yeah, it, it was weird. It, I can understand why a lot of people wouldn't like this. It had a very arty feel to it. But, you know, I... I thought it looked absolutely wonderful and, and I enjoyed the stories. I think it's fair to say we've had two reviewers that have given very positive reviews of this film. <laughs> Whereas the reality is this is more pretentious bollocks from production company A24. This time <laughs> right. they move from they move from destroying the horror genre to the Arthurian legend with the tale of Gawain, previously told in the far better Sean Connery film Gawain and the Green Knight, which, by the way, a lot of the props of that film are in a museum in Cornwall, if you're interested. This takes the poem, slight at best, and expands it to over two hours, boring us to death with such themes as aging, nature, and honour. God almighty, I think I lived three lifetimes watching it. All shown in very clunky ways. Yes, it looks good, as everybody said up to now. But does it entertain? Does it bollocks? A case of Emperor's New Clothes. Now, people are frightened to say how bad this film is in case they're shown up by supposedly meaningful film critics. Here you get an honest appraisal from someone with real Celtic origins. And that's important because those that know their history know that King Arthur was Welsh. And that is a hill any true knight would die on. Who goes there? It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon from the castle of Camelot. King of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. Pull the other one. Let's move on. Let's go back to the technical. Let's talk about writer, that writer-director. Whatever happened to the David Lowry who made Pete's Dragon, the only film of note he's made to date? Here he mails the Arthurian legend with willow virus Scalibur without a feeling for either film. Dev Patel does his best, but what can you say about a movie where the usually excellent Sean Harris seems to be turning up just to pick up his check? And as for that enigmatic or open ending, look carefully. It's far from that and very clear if you followed the clues. And by the way, extra points to anybody that stayed awake to this point. A24 didn't disappoint. It's down (laughs) to their usual standards. What classic story are they going to bodge up next? Graham. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Just say, I agree with Jeff, and then we can move on. No, I'm a sucker for medieval films. Yeah, the pacing is slow and steady. As the story unfolds, this is the very antithesis of the mainstream modern movie paradigm, which tells stories. Oh, Empress, new clothes. Here we go. Flashing words. That's my clothes. Yeah. And the sort of crap that Jeff likes, you know, (laughs) the day glow energy and the operatic craziness. Yeah. This was a chance to sit back, relax, and let the story wrap around you, Jeff. Yeah, this film yeah, throws yeah. out dozens of conundrums. Obviously, too many for you. Do you know what, Graham? You've turned into Boris Johnson tonight. <laughs> let's throw, let's let's talk. Let's talk about the Romans. <laughs> what have the Romans ever done for us? No, God Almighty! And start uh, spouting Latin at the. Why did he accept the strange challenge? What's his mother up to? What's the king's angle on this? Why is the queen so committed to her Christian faith but ends up reading possessed letters? I loved it. I mean, the look of the film, as everybody said, is beautiful. The journey out being the tour de force in uh, cinematographer's art. The journey reminded me a lot of Bergman. 
Um, obviously, the colour and intimacy swap. Ingrid for, Bergman, I thought you meant that. <laughs> <all right. laughs> uh, yeah, for the white, black and white detachment of the Seventh Seal, another film that Jeff doesn't like. Yeah, um, I'd like the Seventh Seal. Well, so why didn't you like this? Because it's not pretentious bollocks, that's why. Oh, I'm going to play a game of chess against death on the seashore. No, pretentious, not at all, yeah. It just oozes strangeness. But it is in a foreign language. <laughs> oh, this order, has been order, good. Please, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to finish it now. I just really enjoyed this film. It was interesting diversion from the venom and Halloween kills. I enjoyed the film, not just as a cookie-cutter, mass-produced and unfulfilling mess like the, the next two films we're about to review. The Green Knight, I just really, really enjoyed it. If you want to watch it, a movie that's now showing on Amazon Prime, yeah, I just really enjoyed this film. I thought it was very different, very unusual, and very enjoyable. Thank you, Boris. So the next film after that, and it has to be a step up, is Halloween Kills. My grandmother was right. The boogeyman was real. It's over. You can't hurt anyone ever again. No one told you. Told me what? Somebody in there? Michael Myers is alive. Stop! You had a knife in your stomach. You and Allison should not have to keep running. Evil dies tonight. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched the previous film, Halloween. At the end of that movie, Michael Myers was left to die in a burning house. Luckily for him, unluckily for us, he was rescued by firemen. And I'm sure you can guess how he rewarded them for their efforts. While Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, recovers in hospital, Michael continues his killing spree in Haddonfield. Can the residents band together to stop him this time? Jeff, you're a big fan of these movies. Did this one slay you? Well, I'll continue on my downward cycle. I don't think this movie could slay itself. Uh, Quite simply, this is a filler movie between Halloween and Halloween Ends, which is coming next year. By being constructed as this trilogy, it expands also the biggest problem with the 2018 sequel and creates a few new issues along the way. Firstly, the problem. Michael Myers is not an interesting character. He's, in fact, just a killing machine devoid of any personality. They tried to give him more of a backstory in the last Halloween movie, but in this film, that just falls away, leaving only an interest in how gory the murders are, on a par with the nonsense that is Jason in Friday the 13th movies. Oddly, despite all the gore and attempts at shock value, which is really the main card they've got to play, the most effective moments in this film are not seen. The death of Little John, where you, the camera pulls back to outside the window, and the moment where Jamie Lee Curtis stabs herself in the ass with a hypodermic. You have to see that to believe it. That last one did actually make me cringe, the only time I jumped in the entire film. And that brings us to Jamie Lee Curtis, who really has no part to play in the movie, just sits in a hospital. Hope that paycheck was good, and she managed to get a few naps in on that bed. She was much more effective in the hospital in Halloween 2 from 1981. But then that sequel was also superior to this. But there are some points of interest. 
And I think the film does pick up on two themes, although it never really explores them in detail. Firstly, the effect of how such an incident as the original Halloween shapes lives, the Tommy and Lindsay story. And then there's this mob rule aspect. You know, in, in that way, they're, they're worse than Michael Myers. And it's very much a Twilight Zone, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street kind of story. Other than that, it's aimless and pointless. The ending, which is supposed to be shocking and wants you to say, I must see what happens next, is just, so what? At least it's better than The Green Knight. And that doesn't bode well for the finale coming next Halloween. Oh, you really didn't like The Green Knight. No, I hated it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, much better. But uh, Darren? I've got to say, I absolutely loved the 2018 Halloween and my heart did sink when I heard that it was being expanded into a trilogy because I really didn't think it needed to. I thought that film basically had a whole new direction and had a story that basically ended in a in a great way and had positive message. And when I heard about the reviews for this one, I, I really was not looking forward to sitting through it. And I've, I've got to say, if you just sit through this as a simple film and just accept that it's going to be an inferior uh, sequel just done for the books i thought it was fine i'll be honest i I was i was entertained for for the most part just by switching my brain off i've got i've got to say it's a weird one because there were lots of there were lots of things that i actually liked the ideas of in this film but the execution i just found really wanted and, and frankly weird I mean, one of the things that I liked was that they, they seemed to be going for this idea of, of mob hysteria and mob rule and, and, and the whole idea of, of wanting to strike out at something but not really knowing how they could actually find the target. The fact that they had a slogan, evil dice tonight, that they all chanting as this mantra, it, it could be mirrored to any sort of like political movements of, of the sort of, of the last four years, whether it be um, make 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 a great again or Black Lives Matter or what, whatever, the how people will latch onto something like that. But the way they did it was so clumsy and almost comical. I mean, the, the, the sight of this mob running through a, a hospital, including nurses and and surgeons and doctors, who you would all sort of chanting like evil dice tonight and knocking people out of the way and stuff like it just felt it felt like a spoof. It, it felt like the sort of thing you would see on one of the scary movie films. It was, I was almost laughing at moments. But there was another thing that I actually liked, and that is bringing back the characters from the the original seventies film, and the and fact that they, they had this touching moment where, as, as a contrast to to Laurie, who was PTSD afterwards, and and was sort of like you know it really destroyed her life experience in the first film. There was like a positivity in this film that the people who were kids and were attacked and survived uh, Michael Myers. They got something positive by forming friendships with each other and going out on the anniversary every year. And, and I thought that was like a nice contrast to what actually, what the Laurie character went through, that these these people actually sort of brought something good out of a traumatic experience. The only problem was that they then actually turned that on its head by killing off all these characters, by the guy that they'd survived in the first thing. In fact, in sometimes actually dying in the same way, the same situation, but they'd survived. And I thought that was like really, really grim and depressing. You, you know, it, it, you're, you're and, thinking of the nurse, aren't you, in the car? Well, yeah, yeah. But the fact that all, all, I think all of the characters that survived the, the original film ended up 
dying in this one. But like, yeah, like I said, the nurse in the car, she, she survived the uh, Michael Myers smashing in the window and getting her in the first one. And then the exact same thing happened in this, but this time she got killed. It just, it just like history, after everything, they survived. To be killed by the guy that, you know, it, it just, it, it left a really bad taste in my mouth. And, then, and another thing as well is, there were so many like really creative, gory kills in, in this film. But they're done against characters which were really, really likable. If you're going to do those sort of kills, you need to do them for characters that either A, you, you don't know and don't care about, or B, characters that you don't like and want to see the comeuppance. I mean, some of them are almost comedy. I mean, the, the, the young girl in the, um, in the nurse's outfit where she shoots herself in the head accidentally, it was almost done for laughs. I mean, you had the, the gay characters who were this like really nice couple who you like because they scare the hell out of them like really obnoxious kids and then they they got these lingering really gory deaths it just felt really weird didn't you think the death of little john of the two gay characters which happens off screen was one of the most effective deaths in the, in the film oh yeah definitely but like i said but then his partner who got this sort of like you know this this long lingering scene and there's it was almost like a, a spectacle made of his his death i just really hated that and also the, the decision after the first film had been so stripped down down to earth, which made it Michael, to me made Michael Myers scarier because he felt like a real psycho. Now you you made him this indestructible, almost supernatural presence, and almost like in that first scene was almost like a, a John Wick with an axe, how he was dispatching the firemen. It just seemed to do a complete U turn on everything that I liked about the the first movie and i will be perfectly honest as i it's one of these things that i'll I'll almost treat this film as not my canon whereas i have the 70s halloween film the 2018 halloween film and then just ignore anything else and they're just sort of like cheap knockoff movies i think i'll struggle to even like you know to to see that this trilogy I, i i don't see what interesting but way they're gonna that they're gonna conclude this trilogy at all one thing else as well, I've got to say, no one seemed to give a chuff about the husbands in this film, because you, you had you had the um, the husband who was killed in the previous movie, and his wife and and his daughter didn't seem to like that cut up about it at all. They mentioned him a couple of times, but they didn't seem heartbroken that he was dead. I mean, you have a scene earlier on where the first one that Michael Myers attacks. The wife sort of like tries to do a runner while the husband's being killed in front of her. Not, what's going on with that? I just want to pick up your point about canon because I, I you didn't mention it, but I, I think it's worthy of mention is Kevin Williams' Halloween H2O. Right, which I've never seen, to be well, honest. Yeah, um, in terms of canon, the original, H2O, and then I can't be bothered with any of the others. Yeah, I, I, again, I thought the 2018 one was, was pretty good. I thought, I think Darren's right. You know, they've done they've got a film and then they said, well, we'll make three films out of it, you know, and that's just absolute nonsense. You're just weighting down something that doesn't need it. Darren's absolutely right. If they'd kept it to the 2018 film, I think that would have been good and no problem with that. Just watching the film and just sort of, you know, switching your brain off. I I, I thought it was a fine a fine film to sit through, a fine as in sort of like, you know, painfully average. I feel that there's like a, a, some really good elements in this story, 
like I say, like the, the whole sort of mob rule that you could do as a, as a metaphor for for you know society these days, the introduction of of the characters from from the first movie, but the just way they handled it was just so absolutely clumsy, and I just think there's there's something that they they, they had an idea for, but they just it was just so executed so poorly. Well, at least we got Graham in to watch a horror film. What did you think? Well, I'm I'm going to quickly interject before Graham says anything. This is such a good scary horror film. Graham went and watched it. <laughs> you make a good you make a good point, and it's a shame Neil isn't here. Well, that's that's two horror films it. I've watched this month. Yeah, I absolutely hated this. I mean, I enjoyed the first one because it's. I thought that's it. It's it's a complete unit. It worked very logically. I thought Jamie Lee Curtis in the first one was excellent. And when he when they eventually managed to get him into the basement and set him on fire, I thought oh, that's a proper ending. But then they pulled this stunt and turned it into a a trilogy like they'd done with The Hobbit. I mean, the one aspect of the film I did like was some of the flashbacks they did in this film to the 1970s, the time of the Carpenters original. Those parts were great. And I, I, they got the look of the 70s movies perfect. And also the music was very Carpenter-ish. But this was a total waste of time. I came out of this movie feeling cheated. They took my money and they gave me nothing in return. I was hoping for character development and insight into the effects of the brutal murders on the town, but instead I just got introduced to a series of people who would later become victims. If you want a straightforward slasher movie with brutal killings and an unstoppable killing machine, then this is the movie for you. If you want any more depth, then this is not the movie for you. I really hope they get this sorted by the next film. Uh, which comes out October 14th, 2022. I hope this is just a bridge movie to get them from an excellent beginning, hopefully to an excellent end. Which apparently has references to COVID in it. Really? They've they've added it to the script, yeah. Oh, God, now they're just looking for things to do, aren't they? Um, Okay. But um, I did like the... As Darren mentioned about the uh, the mob rule stuff and their little chant that they had, I mean Michael Myers is a monster and he creates so much terror that the entire town becomes a mob to hunt him. So the monster creates another monster in the unthinking, vengeance-driven mob of townsfolk. But it was a bit get your pitchforks and let's attack the monster. <laughs> but it just didn't work for me. I was very disappointed. Even that, though, it, I mean, it just they they, they couldn't like rely on the, the uh, audience's um, intelligence. They had to spell it out for you by having the policeman say, "We're just as bad as him now." It's like, yeah, we we get that. You don't have to do this little bit of exposition. And as far as COVID goes, at least Michael Myers is wearing a mask. Oh, nice one, Darren. <laughs> thank you, thank oh, you. I'm here all good week. one. Yes, <laughs> try the veal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Phil, you, even you've got to admit this is better than The Green Knight. This film is as bad as the last three films we just talked about were good. I think that Darren definitely mentioned it. I think a few of you mentioned it, but it's just completely filler. It's the only people who will really be interested in watching this are those who've committed to watching the whole trilogy and want to see Halloween Kills next year so that they can round it out. 
that everything that happens here just feels completely superfluous and pointless. As with the previous film, it's completely devoid of scares. I mean, I don't know if I'm mistaken here, but I thought these films were meant to be scary. Isn't that the whole point of horror films? They focus an awful lot on the brutal violence, and there are some really, really violent stabbing deaths here. But, and I don't know if this should bother me in any way, it didn't impact me in the slightest. Not remotely phased. Should I be going to see a therapist about yes. this? Or is it just <laughs> or is it just that if I don't give a hoot about the characters, I don't give a hoot that they're they're dying. I mean, you know, in the spirit of trying to say something nice about it, and I can only think of one thing that's nice about it, uh, Jim Cummings appears in the flashback scenes, which you briefly alluded to, Graham, um, about you know how good they were in terms of matching to the original yes. film. So, so Jim Cummings, he's a really exciting writer, director, actor. He's made three films. I've seen two. Um, Thunder Road is about a policeman having a bit of a kind of midlife crisis, nervous breakdown, struggling to look after his daughter. Um, and his second film, and the point I say this is, his second film is called The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And it's a proper horror film, something that this could only dream of ever being. And absolutely recommend it. Go, you know, go and watch that rather than finding this. But he's the best thing in the film. And, and he just appears for like five minutes tops. You've all referred to the, the clumsy mob rule storyline. But honestly, it just did my head in. It was just so dumb and stupid. It then like tries to explain Michael Myers' otherworldliness. I mean, it's like explaining your own joke and why it's funny. <laughs> but here's why Michael Myers is scary, everyone. Uh, can you all please listen to me? He's scary because of these things. It's just horrible and just bad and in my attempt to be funny i know i did it earlier right but remember it won't be evil that dies tonight it will be your soul as you watch this film that's a good line that is i might even steal that but when i talk about <laughs> the green knight next <laughs> okay well there we go then the halloween kills um it'll be interesting to see where they take this story next year but Really, do we care? Anyway, with the last film of the month, Venom Let There Be Carnage. Eddie Brock, I want to give you my story. People love serial killers. I have tasted blood before, and that is not it. All I ever wanted in this world is carnage. I guess you would call him Marvel's anti-hero, is back. Eddie Brock, played by Tom Hardy, is trying to get his life back together and learn to live with Venom inside him. Venom is also having problems adjusting to the not-eat-people rule Eddie has imposed. Things change when Eddie gets to interview convicted serial killer Cletus Cassidy, 
Woody Halson. During one of their meetings, Cletus becomes infected with Eddie's blood and creates a Venom offspring called Carnage. Will Eddie and Venom be able to stop this evil killer? Darren, how does this compare to the first Venom movie? Well, I thought I was in the minority of people who actually loved the first Venom movie. I think Turd in the Wind was uh, one of the best lines in the movie ever the other year. In fact, when I when I went to see that film uh, and it came up to, the, to that line about to be delivered, there was this excitement that rose in the audience because it's what people had come to see. I've got to say that everything that I loved about that first movie, I got all over again. But this time, I think there was a, a much stronger story and in a lot more concise way. The partnership of Venom and Eddie is an absolutely hilarious odd couple. And I just love actually spending a couple of hours just hanging around with them. And what I loved about it is that the, um, at, the, at the end of the first one, you got the idea that they'd come to, to some sort of understanding between us. But in this film, you could see that they were still having tons and tons of problems, you know, being with each other and you got all the bickering and all the banter that you know came from the first one and them driving each other nuts and and, and I, th- I thought it was absolutely wonderful and it was also actually really moving at times you, you felt that there was like a real friendship in there a, a very weird friendship it has to be said but the fact is that by the end of the movie you could see that these two actually really did care about each other and uh, and one of, one of my favorite scenes in there as, as well was the bit where venom goes to the rave and he's touched because he actually feels like he's been accepted by them as an outsider and he's dancing and everything and his weirdness is actually acceptable I, I thought that was actually a really great scene i thought that was the worst scene I, in I, the film well, i thought it was great <laughs> i loved it um what what i loved as well is that the film it's like the first one just reveled in its over-the-topness and its ridiculousness. But the thing that I really loved is there's a trope that goes through a lot of super, particularly superhero movies, but movies in general, where you have two, you have a hero and a villain, and they always have a fight about midway in the movie. And you meet the hero is the one that has to lose, and then you get another fight at the end where the hero wins. In this one, you just have the one fight between Venom and, and Carnage. And that was it. There was more of a build and there was more anticipation for this clash when it actually happened. And because of that, you know, everything, you know, you weren't bored about seeing all the um, all the Venom carnage stuff by then. It was like, you know, really exciting. You just got it all in one fight. I, I really like Woody Harrelson in this. He, I, I felt he was great dipping back into his uh, natural born killer days. I loved the Bonnie and Clyde dynamic he had with Naomi Harris really really enjoyed this um, the, the, the one criticism I have in this film and it's the one which I would throw back into the first film is as well is the fight scene was so fast and you know uh, the, at times it was hard to tell what was going on I, I realised that because, because of their, their power set Venom and Carnage that they have to have these like really weird um, you know shapes and, and, and really weird sort of scene, scene between them but you can do the same thing and just slow it down a bit and so that you can actually see what's going on and also there's so much creativity you can do with their shape shifting everything I think you could have done a lot better battle scene but otherwise you know I, I really I just thought that this was absolutely a lot of fun the end credits had such a they had me giddy 
because it was so obvious that there's some really big things coming in for the Venom, the Venom verse, as I like to call this now. But yeah, I really did enjoy this movie, and and it was a lot of fun. But it's it's, I, I love my Marvel movies, as you all know. But this one has, it, it's it's got a nice crazy anarchistic bent to it that just sets it apart. But you can go in and just really really enjoy this and have a lot of fun. I want more Venom. Thank you very much, Phil. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, look. The first three films we talked about were great. The last one we talked about was awful. And this one's just fine. It's just all right. So after I watched it, and and I sort of was thinking about writing my review for my blog, I went and read my review of the first film. And I pulled out two quotes from my review of the first film. Schizophrenic aspires to be an interesting mess. That sums this up as well. I mean... It's basically identical. I mean, I think I enjoyed this one a little more, but it's just... Look, I'll talk about some specific points, but I think this film and Venom is doing what it wants to do. I think it's achieving what it's trying to achieve. I just don't think that that's for me. I don't enjoy what it is trying to do. Tom Hardy clearly loves this character and he's got a story credit on this film as well. So he clearly is getting very involved in that sort of relationship and the the odd couple dynamic that Darren just mentioned. And there's some really good, fun, slapstick, double-act humour. Doesn't match the rest of the film. And that's one of the things I find so odd about the Venom films because... I agree with what Darren just said. I really enjoy watching Tom Hardy muck about with himself as Venom and and Eddie Brock and, you know, trying to cook eggs and all that sort of crazy stuff. It just doesn't match anything else in the film, and it's just a bit weird. It's like um, you sort of have all these handbrake turns in the film constantly. It does introduce some decent comic lore. There's some good stuff in there for, you know, fans of the comics, I thought that the villains were really, really underwritten. Cletus Cassidy, like, is just a cipher. Naomi Harris is wasted. Mm. The returning cast have a bit of fun. I thought Michelle Williams probably had more to do in this than she did in the first film. The woman who runs the shop, I thought she was funny, and she had a bit more to do as well. And the uh, ever-suffering fiancé of Michelle Williams as well. So they all got to come back and do a bit more fun and they kind of fitted into the sort of humour aspect of the film. It's hard to think about how they're going to improve the the final fight sequence in a Venom film when it is so heavily reliant on CGI. But it's, it's not fun or particularly interesting to watch. If you liked the first one, I think you're going to like this one. If you're indifferent, you'd be indifferent. I don't see that this is any step up or down from the original. The fact that the mid credit sequence is the most interesting and intriguing facet of the film is, is concerning, as far as I'm concerned, for the rest of that film. So, Graham? Oh, well, I'm going to echo a bit more of uh, what Phil said. I mean... My thoughts were, hang on, what the hell happened? The first Venom film was great. So what happened with this one? We had two great comic book characters in Venom and Carnage, and what they delivered on screen was one of the most bland 
comic book films I've ever watched. The tone was all over the place. One minute trying to be funny, next minute trying to be mysterious, and then jumping to a hunt for clues before we reached the big fight at the end of the film. Tom Hardy, Woody Harrelson, Naomi Harris were totally wasted, as far as I was concerned. I really don't know what Andy Serkis was trying to do with this movie. It just seemed muddled and missing any sort of energy or drive that I found in the first one. The whole movie was an exercise in low-energy performance. Again, like Halloween, this was just a big disappointment for me. Um, Doubly disappointing, because I I really thought Venom was going to go off in a different direction, and I just did not like the fight at the end. Not only was it very fast, very confusing, but I just... The CGI was just slightly off. There was something, they felt a bit too floaty. In the first film, when Venom is is running around, he's got this incredible weight and heft to him. When he lands on the floor, he thumps. When he gets crashed around, it's, it feels like really weighty stuff. In this, he just seemed to be, you know, being thrown about like a rag doll. It just didn't work for me. It's a huge disappointment. Yeah, sadly, I'm going to echo a lot of what Graham said oh, there. Oh, uh, no, Graham yeah. with Jeff. Oh, yeah, no. well, I, I mean, I enjoyed the first Venom film. I thought it was well acted. It's an anti-hero rather than the superhero. This is, as you said, bland and unsatisfying. It just never goes anywhere. It's like any comic book, you know, and they got plenty of pictures because they're aimed at seven-year-olds. It's something you pick up, then cast aside when you something more exciting to do, like washing the dishes. And... Uh, Having thought about this, I think one of the reasons this film fails and it just doesn't work is it tries to merge two ideas and it just doesn't make them compatible. So the first is another Venom-like creature. They did that in the first film and it's the law of diminishing returns. And I've got to agree with Graham, the CGI just didn't cut it and you didn't have that weight with it. Then there's this odd couple story of Eddie and Venom not getting on. And it's superficial. And I suspect that Andy Serkis was more fascinating on that latter story. But the makers and producers and whoever had final cut were more interested in the former story. And so what you get is something that interests nobody. The acting, I thought Hardy was, he wasn't sleazy carrier of the first film and he was very poor. Uh, the female cast were the only reason, I would say, for watching this. Naomi Harris is excellent. Michelle Williams, and I pick up your point, Phil, she adds an anchor to the film, and she could have been in it more. Peggy Lou is Mrs. Chen. She basically steals every scene mm, she, she is, is in. And it's a sad fact that when the most interesting aspect of the movie and the best idea is something that happens in the mid-credit sequence and is yet another advert for planet Marvel and the nonsense <laughs> they push down our brains, like anti-vaxxers. Um, oh, but, you know, and that's the best thing they come up with. But then, hey, this is Marvel. So there we go. So from some, positivity. From others, not. Currently, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, is only showing in cinemas. So, a mixed bag for everybody. What was good enough to be film of the month? Taking back you, what has everyone selected for their film of the month? For me, it's The Last Jewel, although I really did enjoy The Green Knight, even more so now because it annoys Jeff. Uh, <laughs> Jeff? Just being pedantic, aren't you? Uh, no Time to Die for me, easy. I'm going to go for The Last Duel as well. And Phil, what's your choice? 
I just want to say those three really top-notch films, it's hard to pick, but the one that suits my sensibility for films is The Green Knight. Okay, so the last duel wins it this month then. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another app the flicks is in the can. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm actually missing Neil. Just so you can take the piss out of him, is it? Rather Neil than us. And to everyone else... Thank you for listening and goodbye. And don't forget the latest episode of Darren's Dash is coming soon. Dry martini. Oui, monsieur. Wait. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of quinoa lily. Shake it over rice and then add a thin slice of lemon peel. Yes, sir.